Uh, good morning. <clears throat> so, as you can see, that's what we're reading. Has to be probably the most spectacular conversion ever recorded. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All of those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him, to the, uh, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. 
When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. Father in heaven, uh, we've, we thank you that we can now think about this wonderful moment when you turned a man's life upside down with his vision of the Lord Jesus, exalted and glorified, and you turned the world upside down because of it. So please help us to understand what this means for us and to understand what it means that Jesus is alive and exalted and living and Lord. Amen. Okay, so we just heard one super encouraging story. Wouldn't it be great if we heard more stories like that? Mike is a friend of mine. He goes to Trinity Church Brighton. He's quirky, he's lovable, he's a computer genius, he's a hard rocker. He has heaps of friends in the pub band scene in Adelaide. Recently, at his 60th birthday party, at which Mike and nine other guitarists were playing on stage with two drummers in sync. I've never seen anything like it. Um, Mike, to that packed pub crowd, spoke of his Damascus Road conversion in Rundle Street 40 years before. Um, he'd been heading into town. He was 20 years old. He had the singular aim of having his first ever sexual conquest that night. As he was walking down Rundle Mall, he passed by a street preacher um, and he was converted on the spot. He had a Damascus Road experience. His life was completely turned upside down, never the same, and 40 years later, he's still talking about it. Now, when I hear that, I think, praise God, but why don't more of those stories happen? Why doesn't God give everyone a Damascus Road experience? Why doesn't Jesus just appear before my hard-hearted friends and relatives and just convert them on the spot if he died for them, right? Um, why aren't these experiences the norm? Our passage today is a favourite one for preachers. You, if you've been around church scenes for a while, you've probably heard sermons on this and preachers making the point that no one is beyond God's call. If God converted hard-hearted Saul, he can convert anyone. But doesn't that beg the question? You know, if people are as hard-hearted as Saul, why then doesn't God give more Damascus Road experiences? I mean, if you think of the barriers to people believing in him today, no one is now alive who has seen him, uh, seen Christ. We need to take that by faith. 
Christians are often dismissed as extremists or out of date or as unthinking ignoramuses, uh, which is untrue, but that's what we're portrayed as. And despite the wake-up calls that God's given us in the last year, bushfires, coronavirus, despite those wake-up calls and people being forced to even think about God, it's just not the case that therefore God, um, lots and lots of people are coming to Christ in droves, so far as I know. Um, this is why, precisely why this story is so helpful to us. Uh, it's still culturally relevant. We still use the phrase in our vernacular, Damascus Road experience, to describe a life-changing, life-altering, sudden, revelatory moment of insight that someone gets. Um, just last year, Christos Tsiolkas, who wrote The Slap, he released his new best-selling book, Damascus, describing this very moment. It was on the bestseller list. This story still has cultural um, currency in our culture, but it's more than that, because if this story is anything, it's a true story about Jesus overcoming barriers to the gospel advancing. It's not just Saul's story. This story sets the new normal for how God works today. Should we expect lots of Damascus Road experiences today? Well, maybe or maybe not. Let's get into the story. It begins with two words. Meanwhile, Saul just alerts us to this story. This story marks a scene change. Something's been going on. Meanwhile, over here, Saul, okay, and puts this story within a bigger context within the book of Acts, set out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus lays the agenda out for his apostles. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That is the agenda for Jesus' disciples. That's the program for the book. The apostles have to carry the news of the resurrected Jesus out from its Jewish epicenter, out to the ends of the earth. Simple, right? No, anything but. It hasn't been simple. By the time we get to chapter 9, we've already encountered the barrier of Jewish parochialism, their unwillingness to go to non-Jews with the gospel because Jews don't associate with non-Jews. Okay, so that's a big barrier. Then there's the religion barrier of Jewish and soon Gentile objections to the gospel. Now this chapter takes us back to another barrier, the barrier of opposition, Saul was still breathing out his murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And with that barrier of opposition and persecution comes another barrier, and that's fear. So Saul had stood as a willing spectator to Stephen being martyred, the first martyr. Saul was minding the clothes there while Stephen's being pummeled to death with rocks. At the start of chapter 8, Saul has begun to destroy the church. He's going from house to house, arresting Christians. My goodness, could you imagine if that happened in Stirling or Aldgate or Crafers? You know, uh, do you believe in the Lord Jesus, right? Okay, into jail you go, far out. Okay, but then, of course, against all that, the Lord has been advancing the gospel. Firstly, to Samaria with its half-caste Jews, and then to its full-blown Gentile, first full-blown Gentile convert, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The gospel's going out. 
Saul is determined to counter the gospel. The Lord is determined to advance it. The stage is set for conflict. And the church is in the middle. How is the Lord going to handle this? Brilliantly. Literally. Brilliantly. Because in verse 3, on his program of persecution on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus confronts Saul with brilliant light, the brilliant light of his heavenly glory, and Saul falls to the ground, and he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Saul is a strictly monotheistic Jew. He worships only one God. He hasn't even heard of the word Trinity, and he's now stopped on the road. He just doesn't even have a category to understand who's talking to him. He knows from the brilliance of the light that whoever's speaking, this is a divine encounter. But resurrected and exalted son of God is not a category that's entered his brain. And Saul just says, who are you, Lord? And the reply to him could not have been more shocking. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Notice there are no options presented for Saul at this point. No options for decisions. He has been confronted by the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is inescapable. And what can Saul do? He can only surrender. That's it. Now we ask ourselves, why doesn't this sort of thing happen to the hard-hearted people I know? We assume if God did it here, he could do it again, couldn't he? Think for a moment. Of all the stories and events in the book of Acts, this is the only place where we hear the audible voice of the risen Jesus. Now, why is this? Surely this is a unique moment. Of all the big moments in the book of Acts, this is the only event that gets told and then retold twice more in chapters 22 and 26, three times in total. Why? This is a standout moment, right? You think about what happens. Saul sees a light. He hears a voice. The voice calls him by name. He sees a light. He hears a voice. The voice calls him by name. Where else in the Bible does this happen? Where else does someone see a light, hear a voice, get called by name? Sorry? Burning bush, Moses at the burning bush. Exactly right, Exodus chapter three. Moses, who is called, he would become the leader of God's people in the greatest national salvation event which would define the Jewish people as the people of God. The call of Moses is a hugely significant event in salvation history. And now in the conversion of Saul, we have the same elements, light, voice, calling by name, signaling this event is not normal. This is a unique moment, one that's huge in salvation history, right? Those traveling with Saul, they're speechless. They hear the sound, they didn't see anyone. But now neither can Saul. Okay, when he gets up from the ground, he is blind. He is blinded by the light. It's ironic, really, because before this moment, he thought he could see so very clearly that those who worship Jesus were guilty of blasphemy against the living God and should be put to death. He saw this clearly, whereas, in fact, 
he was completely blind to the most important truth in the universe, that Jesus of Nazareth, though he was crucified, is alive. More than that, the glorious and exalted Son of God. To that, Paul, Saul had been completely blind. Now, of course, he can't see anything else. He's physically blind to everything else, but the last image that's been etched on the back of his retina and stays there for three days, which allows for a lot of time of processing, right, is the image of the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. Now, that'd change your life. He can't see, but he's had it revealed. He has seen it. He has seen that Jesus Christ is Lord. Saul makes a very pitiful picture in verse 9, a blind man being led by the hand into Damascus, unable to eat or drink for three days. For all his misplaced zeal, all his letters of authority and his strategic plans, Saul, the persecutor, has been stopped in his tracks. With one single encounter, Jesus overcomes the persecution barrier. You see what's happened? But together with the bar the, that barrier of persecution sits the other barrier of fear. And fear, of course, can stop evangelism, can put the brakes on Jesus' agenda of reaching the ends of the earth. Saul promoted fear. But to deal with that, Jesus now sends a second vision. And so in verse 10, we shift from the road to Damascus to Damascus itself. We're focusing now in on the very fearful disciple, Ananias. And again, Jesus confronts him. In a vision, the Lord called to him, Ananias. Yes, Lord. Here's your directions. Street name and house. Go straight to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a, a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen you come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias has heard of Saul, right? <laughs> All the Christians have heard of Saul. He has his fears. He puts them to Jesus. Jesus replied, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now again, there is no room for disobedience to Jesus here. Ananias can only obey. So he, he enters the house. He places his hands on Saul for Saul to receive the Holy Spirit. And we've heard of the, the, the expression scales falling from their eyes. This is where it comes from. Immediately, something like scales falls from Saul's eyes and he can see again. But now, now he sees the universe clearly because at the heart of the universe is Jesus Christ who is Lord. And that means seeing Jesus clearly, now he sees himself clearly. Now he sees his past life of persecuting Jesus' followers clearly. He sees that as an act of persecuting the Lord himself. He couldn't have committed a bigger sin. His actions were not righteous, they were evil through and through. And now he saw, of course, he's now rethinking things, all his reliance on the law, the Old Testament Jewish law, and his zeal for the law, was a complete waste of time. Yes, he had obeyed the law, surely, but he was completely wrong so far as the things of God were concerned. He focused on the minute commandments, but he'd neglected the thing at the center. 
Could you be saved by the law? Well, the law hadn't saved him. He had been saved only by the gracious intervention of the risen Lord Jesus Christ into his life. Salvation to him was not by law. Salvation was by God's grace alone. Nothing of himself. And so you can see how Saul's theology is forming, right? And so Saul got up and was baptized. Acts 22 says this was to wash his sins away. Now he knew what he must do. Which brings us to the second half of the chapter, the defining mission. First of all, the defining encounter, now the defining mission. Jesus had confronted Saul. Jesus had converted Saul. Jesus had called and commissioned Saul to be his messenger to the Gentiles. And I want you to notice, first of all, what he doesn't do. Saul doesn't start up pilgrimages along the Damascus Road so that other people will have similar Damascus Road experiences. Because that's not how people normally get converted. What does Jesus require of him? Jesus requires of him to be his witness, verse 21. At once Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And everyone's astonished. Isn't he the man who, used, who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful. He baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. What's the normal way for people to become Christians? Well, it's through a Christian person who knows that Jesus is Lord telling a non-Christian person about Jesus being Lord, being the Son of God. In other words, we do not need to wait for Jesus to appear in a vision before people. Of course, he can. I've spoken to a man who was converted like that, um, a Muslim imam. I spoke to him for an hour and a half. I heard his story. It's quite astounding. I'll tell it to you one day. But that's not the norm. Paul started speaking about what he knew about Jesus, of Jesus being the mighty son of God. That's the normal way for people to become Christians. So Saul's mission defines for us what normal mission looks like. People who know Jesus, opening our mouths, speaking about Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. That's what's been happening on CE camp, praise God. Um, no surprise, people responded. Praise God. Okay. Well, what else do we see in Saul's mission? We see the responses of people. That what Saul experienced in responses were not sudden and dramatic Damascus Road conversions, but the responses were surprise, opposition, and encouragement. And again, these responses are here to teach us. First of all, Saul encountered surprise. Okay, people were astonished that he was someone who used to persecute the church, now preaching about Jesus being the Son of God. Now, if you have become a Christian, um, that is, you, maybe you weren't raised in a, non, in, a, in a Christian family, you grew up in a non-Christian family, you've become a Christian. Okay, you'll remember back to people's responses. When you started speaking about him, when you came out, okay, people couldn't figure it out. They were surprised at the sudden change in you. Surprise is a normal reaction, as is the second one, opposition. First at Damascus, then at Jerusalem, Saul, speaking about Jesus, made him enemies. Plans were made in both cities to kill him. Now, some of you are at high school. 
High school, I think, can be the, one of the hardest places to survive as a Christian. You know that other students, if you flag, fly the Jesus flag, they will decide to hate you, not because of anything you've done to them, just, just because you're a Christian. And they will bait you, and they will hassle you, and they will despise you. And it ramps up as soon as you start speaking out about Jesus being the Son of God. Saul experienced opposition. Opposition is normal. But then so again is encouragement, right? And we're meant to see this one as well. In both cities, Damascus and Jerusalem, it was other Christians who provided encouragement in the face of opposition. In Damascus and Jerusalem, they helped Saul escape. In Jerusalem, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, came and stood alongside Saul to vouch for him. Even if you're the only Christian at high school, it's normal to find encouragement somewhere amongst God's people who will help you to stand for him. So these reactions that Saul experienced at the start of his ministry are normal, rather unspectacular reactions to proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Surprise, opposition, encouragement. And all of this to the gospel, which is the same truth about Jesus that Saul saw on the Damascus Road. And Saul's experience helps us to draw the main lines of the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's, it was revealed to Saul on the Damascus Road. It is Christ-centered. It is grace-based. It is law-free. And it is international. The gospel is Christ-centered. It may come as a shock to realize the gospel is not primarily about us. It wasn't you or I or Saul at the center of his vision. It was Jesus in his glory. And then you or I find our place in relation to him. What matters is not how religious or law-abiding we are, but our relationship to Jesus. Jesus asked Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? That was the heart. Why are you treating me this way? Saul's real issue wasn't his persecution of the church, his persecution of Jesus was the issue. Because until he saw Jesus as the son of God, Saul got God completely wrong. Think about a Muslim person. Does a Muslim person worship the same God or a different God as Christians? Now some Christians will say they worship the same God, it's just they know him by a different name. Many of the attributes of Allah in the Quran are the same. Well, according to Saul's gospel, that's completely wrong. Because like Saul, Muslims, if if they don't worship Jesus as the Son of God, they get God wrong. Now, that may sound harsh, but if Muslims did worship the same God, then when they heard about Jesus being the divine Son of God, they'd go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I'd never had it put to me like that, but now you've said his name. I know that's the one whom I worship. But generally, they do not say that, which shows they're not worshiping the same God. The gospel is all about accepting Jesus as the divine son of God. Secondly, the gospel is grace-based and law-free. Before Saul was converted, he was Mr. Law. <laughs> he was the pinup boy of Jewish legalism monthly, right? Saul followed the law of God to the letter. But that did not mean that he was saved. And it didn't mean that he was obeying God. In fact, without realizing it, he was completely disobeying God. And the only way Saul came to obey God and to be saved by God 
was through the gracious intervention of the Son of God into his life. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he will testify, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Interesting. Unbelief, he says. He says, the grace of God was poured out on me abundantly. Grace-based, you see. Ephesians 1, 3, verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. The gospel is grace-based and law-free. Finally, the gospel is international. Beforehand, Saul had no thought of ever reaching the Gentiles. Yuck. He thought salvation was by birthright, only for Jews, only by the law. But Jesus sent Saul to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Acts chapter 26, verse 18, in the third recount of this story. Now that means that the gospel is international. So Jesus' encounter with Saul defines for us the main lines of the gospel. It is Christ-centered, it is grace-based, it is law-free, and it is international. Why is this story here? Well, it's here because it it happened. (laughs) It's true. It's here because God can convert anyone, true. But the main reason it's here is to define for us Saul's ministry and by extension our ministry as we carry on the ministry of Saul. Now, what do I mean by that? We've seen in one respect no one can replace Saul. He has a unique place in salvation history. He brings the gospel to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. But the job's not finished yet. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 speaks about Jesus wanting the the news of the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. The book of Acts finishes with Saul in Rome, which was the center of the known world, not the ends of the earth, not the far reaches of it. And so the reason this chapter is here is to give us clarity on the nature of mission and on the message we preach and also what to expect as we continue on Jesus' mission that he first gave the apostles, but now which he's passed to us. Here we see it's Jesus who overcomes all the barriers to the gospel. We need to hear this, don't we? I mean, in our church, we're trying to reach the hills, okay? It's Jesus who overcomes the barriers to the gospel. It's not musicians, though we love our musicians, that we love to be able to sing. It's not marketing. It's not groovy kids' talks. It's not me, it's not you, It's Jesus, which means if we see barriers up, we need to trust him and we need to pray. We need to get on our knees and pray that God would have a witness in this place and that people around the hills this year in 2021 would come to know the risen Jesus. You know, for years, um, even thinking further because the gospel's international, Iran has been hardened against Christian witness And it still is, and I'm praying that God will make it easier for Iranian Christians to witness and for other people there to accept him as the son of God. That's how it will happen, normal Christians telling the news. That's how God's at work today. 
very rarely through direct visions, though they can happen, but much more normally through Christians speaking about Jesus as the Son of God. Okay, so we've had summer conference mentioned, not this Friday and Saturday, the other one. Okay. At a previous summer conference I went to, um, one of the speakers, Naomi Reed, she told us about how she and her husband, Darren, had been working as medical missionaries, physiotherapists in Nepal. And how one time after working hard for months with so much need around them, they decided to take a break, which in Nepal means going trekking because that's what you do if you want to have a break there. So they set off in the morning on this walk and at the same time they were trying to learn a chapter of the Bible in Nepalese because they hadn't learned any yet so they could share the scriptures with Nepalese people. So they were walking along They were reciting John chapter 1 in Nepalese. They just picked that passage. It seemed a good place to start. It said they were concentrating so hard that about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they looked up and they realized they were lost. Now, getting lost in Nepal is not a great thing. Um, They'd missed the turn-off to their destination. They were up the wrong valley. The sun was setting. They needed to find shelter. So they set off to find the nearest village. They came to a two-story house which had a few oxen outside. They knocked on the door and they explained that they were lost and could they stay there the night. Two men from upstairs came down, they talked with them. After they'd exchanged pleasantries, the men said, we have one piece of paper, we'd like you to explain it. They only had one piece of paper in the whole house. They wanted it explained. Naomi and Darren said, sure. The men ran upstairs and got it, and lo and behold, it was, you guessed it, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It was the only piece of scripture that Naomi and her husband knew in Nepalese. And they'd only just learnt it that day. It was the only piece of paper the men had. And unless Naomi and Darren had become lost, they wouldn't have been able to explain it to these men, would they? The hand of God. What's striking about that story is how unlike Saul's encounter it was. There's no vision of Jesus. There's no audible voice. There were two ordinary Christians doing their thing, seeking to be witnesses where they were, and God arranged the divine moment, the meeting. This is what God's still doing. God still sets up sometimes astounding meetings, but more often he just places us in front of people in ways much less spectacular. Where we live, who our neighbours are, who we sit next to on the bus, who we meet at work or school or down at the beach. These are ways much less spectacular, but just as much of God as the astounding ways. So, point speak often of Jesus and be open be open to God and finally all of this will happen amid surprise opposition and encouragement that this chapter tells us to expect those things let's pray father in heaven please help us be your um, mouthpiece this year may you use even us in our limited capacity our average levels of holiness our own struggles but saved by grace, knowing that Jesus is Lord. 
And thank you that you brought the ends of the earth, some of them, to Adelaide. So please help us to live in faith and to seize the moment, every moment that you give us. May 2021 be a year when we glorify the Lord Jesus by what we say.